Well, good morning, Reston Bible Church. My name is Jason. I'm on staff here as one of the pastors and elders. Uh, joy to be able to be with you and spend time in God's Word and close out our series on portraits of Christ. Let me pray for us again real quick, and we'll uh, dive in. Father, we are grateful. Father, to be able to come and gather uh, before you, we are grateful, Father, for your Word, which instructs us. Father, which uh, uh, teaches us things that we would not otherwise know uh, about you and about who you are. And today, Father, as we look at Jesus as your son, Father, we pray that you would do by the power of your spirit what we cannot do for ourselves uh, and see the depths uh, of who you are. Um, Lord, we pray that you would use this time, uh, Lord, just for our good and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll start with a, with a story this morning. So uh, a couple months ago, we had a guest speaker here, Milton Harding, if you remember him. Uh, and I was on the schedule to run our live stream. So I show up early, I go to our green room in the back here where our band and Jim and Milton were all gathered. And I walk in, I introduce myself to Milton, I'm saying hi to the worship team, you know, high fives, everything. Uh, Pastor Jim, at one point, puts his hand on my shoulder, pulls me over and says, hey, we debated, we debated about whether or not to tell you this, but you appear to have a wardrobe malfunction. I think, uh-oh. I look down, I'm like, maybe I got a button missing something. Uh, he looks at me and he gives me a head nod like this. He says, wrong side. So I reach around and I feel not pants. <laughs> now, what was painfully clear to everyone in that room at me until that moment is that I had walked into the room with a rip in my pants. Not a hole, a rip, a good eight to ten inches from my waistband heading south. As I discreetly backed out of the room, Martin Hansen looks at me and says, hey, at least you weren't given announcements today. I jump in my car, I drive home, bust in the front door, my wife is there, she says, you just left, why are you back? So I explain the whole situation to her. After she's finished laughing, in the nicest way possible, she asked me a great question. The question was this, she said, how did you miss that? <laughs> and I realized in that moment that I remember ripping my pants two weeks prior to that morning. But in my daily routine and just going about things that I would normally do and not thinking, I'd put them in the hamper and they were subsequently washed, folded, and put, on my, put, in, put in my closet for that fateful morning. And it occurred to me, that in going through the normal routines of life, that I had forgotten what I knew to be true. You know, it may not even be completely accurate to say I forgot. The knowledge simply didn't have proper bearing or impact as I moved on from the moment of ripping those pants. Now, I didn't intentionally forget about the rip in my pants, but I didn't intentionally put that knowledge to action either. It was knowledge, but no application. It became a truth known, but a truth unlived. Now, Scripture speaks to that. You're probably familiar with the verse in James chapter 1, verses 20 through 24, which says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away, and at once 
forgets what he is like. It's kind of a hilarious scenario in one sense, looking into a mirror then walking away and forgetting what you see. I mean, it's hilarious when speaking of my ripped pants because I have a funny story to tell and otherwise no real harm done except for whatever images are burned into the minds of Jim and the worship team. (laughs) It's much less hilarious uh, if we, in our busyness and in our routines, in a similar fashion, forget about Jesus. At Reston Bible Church, we exist to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. It's sort of our mission statement. But to the extent that we don't do the first thing, know Jesus, we can't do the second thing, make him known. Now, we gather for Sunday worship and perhaps you uh, as well. Part of your rhythm, part of your life, part of your routine is a small group, a shepherd group, a Bible study, a prayer prayer group, uh, all good routines. But as we go about them, we should be very careful. We should be wary of allowing truths known to become truths unlived. Now, we may not intentionally forget the good knowledge of Jesus that we glean in these settings. But if we don't intentionally live out and live from the truth of who Jesus is, we will stagnate in our relational growth with him. If we cease pursuing an active, vibrant relationship, if we simply come and glean knowledge but never apply it, never live it out, we'll begin to live off of our memories of him. And no relationship thrives once that shift takes place. That's why 2 Peter 3.18 admonishes us to grow. It says to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our knowledge of him so that we might put it into practice, so that we might give him the glory he is due, so that Jesus would not become a truth unlived in our lives. That's really the impetus between, uh, behind the series that we're wrapping up today, this Portraits of Christ series. Over the past several weeks, we've painted several portraits of Christ. We've examined various aspects of who he is. And for some of you, uh, probably this has been instructive. Maybe there's some new ideas, some new ways of looking at Jesus that you hadn't considered before. Probably for most of you, though, these sermons have served as a series of reminders about what you already know about Jesus, but may have become things that may have become obscured or dimmed or forgotten or left unapplied in the routines of life. We're purposed as a church to know Jesus Christ and to make him known, but we never want Jesus to become a truth known but unlived. Now, just prior to the series, the head of our deacon ministry, John Smith, did an excellent job of walking us through Matthew 14, where there's this big storm, disciples freak out, Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, he walks on water, begins to sink, and Jesus comes walking through the storm. Their trial was his pathway to them, as is often the case. Those situations that we want to avoid are very, uh, the very situations that Jesus uses to draw us close to them. Uh, And as the storm calms and Jesus and Peter get back on the boat, the confession of the disciples there is compelling and it's unique and it's beautiful. And in Matthew 14, 33, they say, truly, you are the son 
of God. And that's the final portrait we'll be painting today as we close out this series. Jesus as the Son of God. It's the most foundational thing that you can know about Jesus, that he is God's own Son. Now, I tend to teach normally through a passage of Scripture. That's how I prefer, line by line, verse by verse. But today's going to be a bit more systematic. It's a broader approach. Uh, But we will spend some time in John chapter 1, if you want to turn there. We'll later get to a little bit of Matthew 16. And then we're going to close out today by taking communion together. But as you turn over to John 1, uh, I want to start with just a quick consideration of the phrase son or sons of God and how it's used in Scripture. Uh, And I want us to consider that all the other portraits that we've painted in the previous weeks all hinge on this one, Jesus as Son of God. And as we go back through the last five weeks, we see and remember that Jesus is indeed the bread of life, that he's the good shepherd, that he is gentle and lowly. He is our life, and he is the final judge. Now, we can believe all of that, and we should. We should believe all that. But none of that matters if we don't also believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God is the most fundamental claim of the Scriptures and of the Christian faith, but it has also been one of the uh, most overlooked, in some ways, misunderstood, disputed, and confused statements in church history. And when we look through the scriptures, we actually see that phrase, son of God, used in a variety of ways. There'll be some uh, references on the screen there, but uh, scripture uh, sometimes calls angels sons of God. Adam is referred to as a son of God. Israel is God's firstborn son in Exodus and Hosea. David and his lineage are promised sonship by God. And faithful Christians in the New Testament are referred to as sons of God. But primarily, when the Bible records this phrase, what the Bible records are the confessions and the proclamations of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This happens some uh, over 40 times in the New Testament. Here's a quick sampling. Uh, Angels confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Luke 1.35, and the angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Demons likewise confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. In Mark 3.11, it says, Whatever the, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. The disciples and the apostles all proclaimed, uh, woo, confessed and proclaimed, <laughs> there we go, and worshiped Jesus as the Son of God. In addition to Matthew 14.33 that we mentioned earlier, uh, John 1.49, Nathaniel says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. It's an outrageous claim for the day and time. John eleven twenty seven. 27, Martha says to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Matthew 16, 17, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Acts 9.20, and immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Jesus uh, alludes to himself as the Son of God, which from a human standpoint uh, would lead to his death by crucifixion because it was blasphemy and punishable by death under Jewish law to do so. There are various places we could look, but uh, John 5.18 sums it up nicely for us. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You can read through the account in Matthew 26 even for more details on that. So how do we make sense uh, of, of this immense title? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, particularly if there are other entities in Scripture that are also called sons of God? So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we want to mean, we want to mean it in the same unique and special way that Scripture means it. Not as a son in that Jesus is a created being. He's not. He's not created like Adam uh, or angels or demons. Uh, we don't mean son of God symbolically, like referring to Israel. We don't mean uh, biologically. God did not mate with Mary. There's no human means that conceived Jesus. And we don't mean he's a son uh, in terms of being adopted, like those who believe are. Jesus as son of God means uniquely and primarily, that Jesus is God, that he is God, that he is in the very same nature as God. And so we're jumping immediately into the deep end here. In the consideration of Jesus uh, as son of God, we are already now out of our league as far as human understanding and logic goes. When we say that Jesus as son of God means that Jesus is God because we don't make that conclusion in human relationships, right? My oldest son is Caleb. I am his father. Caleb is the son of Jason. But it would make no sense to say that Caleb is Jason. He's like me in many ways. We share genetics and uh, personality traits. We share interests. But he is not me, and I am not him. Yet, that is exactly what Scripture means when it is referring to Jesus as the Son of God, that he is God. In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And he's literally using the number one there, meaning singularly one entity, one thing. We're not parts of a whole different things coming together in order to make one thing. We are one, inseparably singularity, a single thing. And that's what we'll see in John chapter 1 in the first few verses that will give us a panoramic view of Jesus' sonship, sonship uh, and resolve to some degree the tension that we find in the various uses of the term son of God. And in fact, John uses the term son of God for Jesus in a way that is completely unique. And in my opinion, uh, utterly mind-blowing. John was a disciple of Jesus, even considered to be in the inner circle of the disciples. He was with Jesus throughout his ministry. This is a man who walked with Jesus, who observed Jesus, who interacted with Jesus. This is a man who knew Jesus. 
And as an author, John from the outset places a particularly clear emphasis on Jesus as the son of God, a theme that he then weaves beautifully throughout his entire gospel account. In fact, John writes his gospel account with the express intent of convincing his readers that Jesus is the son of God. And he tells us that flat out in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But those that have been written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so that's his goal, that we may believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the son of God, and might have life in him. So let's look through first few verses of John 1. Starting in 1.1, 1, 1, familiar verse. Uh, John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John says the word. Now here he's introducing a concept, the word. And he's going to use this concept, word, or logos in the Greek, uh, to, as it's, it's, he uses it as a bridge that he's going to lead us to Jesus as the son of God. So he's writing to an audience that includes both Jews and Gentiles, primarily Greek Gentiles. And so he's using the word logos, which is common ground between these two audiences as a sort of a jumping off point so that they can both, a place they can both understand from their unique perspectives. And then he'll lead them to Jesus through that. So to the Jewish audience, John's use of logos recalls for them the Old Testament equivalent, which was used as a term that personified the revelation and the execution of God's will. Word was God's will and power in action to the Jewish people. To the Greek audience, uh, logos was more of a philosophical concept where a transcendent, creative but impersonal, universal force sort of interacted with and communicated and mediated with the material world. And so what John is about to say essentially is, hey, Jews, the personification and revelation and execution of, of God's will, that's Jesus. And hey, Gentiles, hey, Greeks, that impersonal force that mediates and communicates with our material world, it's not impersonal. It's Jesus. So he doesn't start off by just saying, boom, Jesus is the son of God. But rather he takes a concept familiar to both Jews and Greeks, and then he wades with them into the deeper waters of Jesus's sonship. J.I. Packer, author, theologian, wrote a great book called Knowing God. And in it, he identifies seven steps that John takes on this little uh, journey. And so we're going to, again, walk through the rest of the verses and see how John does this. And this is, this is sort of my synthesis of Packer's work. Let's look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. So if you're taking notes, next to that little section, you can write eternity. In the beginning was the Word. This is the Word's eternity. The Word had no beginning. At the point... When things began to begin, hang with me, the word already was. 
So this is the words eternity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Here you could write down personality. This is showing us that the word has a distinct personality. Packer says that the word is a distinct personal being who stands in an eternal relation to God, one of active fellowship. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's getting getting deep. The word was God. Here you write the words deity. Though personally distinct, Packer observes, from the Father, he is not a creature. The word is divine in himself as the Father is. The word is God. Now, John repeats himself in verse 2 by saying he was in the beginning with God. And so now that John has made it clear that God is The word, he also reiterates the word's eternal nature and distinct personality. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here we see that the word creates. The word creates. All that was made, when everything began to begin, it was the word that was doing the beginning. You're doing great. (laughs) Verse 4, first part. In him was life. And so here you would write the word animates. The word animates. The word brings life. There was no physical life in the realm of created things except in and through him. Last part of verse 4 and verse 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here we see that the word illuminates. Not just physical light, but it reveals truth. The word is the proclamation, the illumination of truth. That which was formerly unseeable is now seen. That which was formerly unknowable is now made known. And so, so far from John... He's told us what some things about the word, right? We know that the word is eternal and personal and divine. We know some things the word does. We know that the word creates and animates and illuminates. It brings life. It reveals truth. And the seventh step that Packer identifies in John's line of reasoning and revelation, a final statement giving clear and specific revelation. He's told us what the word is, what the word does. Now he tells us who the word is. And that comes in verse 14. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here you can write in your notes that the word, this is the word incarnate, right? This is the word becoming flesh. Here God becomes incarnate as the son. Packer observes The baby at the manger in Bethlehem was none other than the eternal word of God. So, let's look at this big picture. Pull back just a little bit. There's this word, right? And this word was there in the beginning with God. It was distinct from God, but it was also God. And the word that is God became flesh as the son of God. God became a man. 
The infinite became finite, the invisible became visible, so that all we have seen so far about the Word is also true about God, is also true about God's Son. And verse 14 tells us that this only Son from the Father is full of grace and truth. And John goes on to make some reinforcing statements so as to leave no doubt who he is talking about. And in verse 17, he takes that thread of grace and truth that he said in 14, and he connects it to Jesus. Verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, connecting the thread, comes through Jesus Christ. And then if there's any doubt whatsoever, in verse 34, when he records seeing Jesus, he says this. He says, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I have seen and borne witness. I have known and I have made known. Not as a nice example, not as a savvy teacher or a good buddy. Not just knowing all the things that Jesus did is cool miracles and, 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 and all of that. But all of this is rooted and grounded and anchored, not merely in the things Jesus does, but who Jesus is, the Son of God. And so knowing that John's end goal in writing this account is what? So that we may believe that knowing, we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So here is the whole of John's line of persuasion summarized uh, this way. We, he gives us three statements about what the word is, that the word is eternal. The word is personal, distinctly, has a distinct personality. And the word is divine. Three statements about what the word is. He gives us three statements about what the word does. The word creates, the word animates, it gives life. And the word illuminates, it brings light and truth. And then three statements about who the word is. What the word is, what the word does, who the word is. The word is God, the word is God's son, the word is Jesus. And so by using this term logos or word, John is, again, utilizing familiar terminology to introduce his readers to the true logos, the true Word in Jesus Christ. And John 1 encapsulates for us what Scripture means when referring to Jesus not as a Son of God, but as the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God means uniquely and primarily that Jesus is God. Beyond angels or men or nations, Jesus is the unique Son, the true and better Son. At the very same nature as God. He is co-equal, we would say, co-eternal, co-majestic. That in his sonship, Jesus is worthy of all praise, honor, glory, and worship that God is due. And the question may naturally arise at this point. It's a good question. Why does it matter? Right? What does all this mean? Why does it matter that we know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, let's go back to our purpose statement as a church, to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. Throughout the scriptures, when Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, uh, I think you see a pattern. Two things generally happen in succession for those who by faith believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, the first is confession. And by that, I mean the solidification or the appropriation of belief. To confess that I hold this to be true. Knowing the truth of Christ, not just knowing about him, um, not just knowing what I, or, or, or coming up with what I want to be true about him, but knowing him for who he is. So there is confession, and that always leads to proclamation. That is what I tell others based on what I actually believe. Knowing Christ and making him known, confession and proclamation. I can't find a place yet in Scripture where the true confession of Jesus as the Son of God, as Lord, as God, is not followed by the proclamation of that truth. It's a normative progression in Scripture that when, when, when Jesus is revealed, that revelation is followed by either rejection or confession. Again, confession meaning the accepting of that truth, rejection meaning, no, I, I deny that. Confession is then followed by proclamation. We proclaim what we confess. Now, I had thought about phrasing that, we blather what we believe, but that sounds less smart. <clears throat> we proclaim what we confess. We saw that progression in John chapter 1. And throughout the book of John, really, uh, Jesus makes himself known to John. And once John knows Jesus, once he confesses him as the Son of God, confesses his belief in that, uh, he in turn goes out and he makes Jesus known. There's revelation, confession, then proclamation. Uh, we see the same pattern in the conversion of Paul, who goes on to write most of the New Testament or much of the New Testament. Uh, Paul began uh, as a zealous persecutor of Christians and of the church uh, until he had an encounter with Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul speaks twice. He speaks two times. The first time is before he believes, and the second is after. And in verse 5, Paul is uh, traveling, having uh, you know, committed atrocities against Christians and traveling to do more. And he is confronted uh, by Jesus. And Paul asks a question. In verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes immediately. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, the second time that Paul speaks is in verse 20, where he is now proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And the way he is doing so is by saying, he is the Son of God. So he knows Christ, and then he makes him known. There's revelation, confession, the appropriation of that belief, and then the proclamation, moving out of that belief. We proclaim what we confess. We blather what we believe. Those who know Jesus make him known. It's now in our new nature. Because we are his people, 1 Peter 2, 9, says that we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Similar language is from John 1. We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, not only as a provider, a sustainer, not merely as a shepherd or a judge, not simply as gentle and lowly or as the bread of life or as a moral example, a historic figure, an inspiration, though he is not less than any of these, but because he is God's own son, 
He is so much more. And it is his sonship, his status as the Logos, the living word who is God, who took on flesh to become one of us in order to redeem us, to purchase us out from under the weight of judgment and sin and death and hell and the grave. It is his sonship that forms the canvas upon which we would paint any other portrait of Jesus. This is the most excellent proclamation that we could make, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As we wind things down, we're going to look at this same pattern in Matthew chapter 16, Revelation, proclamation, Revelation, confession, proclamation. Uh, And it comes here in the form of two questions. Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14 say this. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, Son of Man is a, an Old Testament uh, title for the Messiah, and Jesus uh, uses that term often to refer to himself. And so he says, hey, who do the people say that I am? And because people proclaim what they confess, they blather what they believe, uh, the the disciples answer, say, well, the the people say that maybe you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah. You're you're something beyond a, a mere man. You're a special man. That's what the people say, that you're a prophet, you're a teacher, a miracle worker. Maybe you're a resurrected saint. Not included there. Uh, was that he is the Messiah. They, the, the, the people could not believe that he was the Son of God. They got really close. Really close. But didn't quite get to the truth of his identity. It was close, but not close enough. And so Jesus asks a second question. And to me, man, this is, this is the ultimate question. Verses 15 and 16. Jesus says to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now life is full of questions, right? You probably came in this morning with some questions. Now I've got three kids and we have periodically asked them the the what do you want to be when you grow up question. Now, there's been some interesting answers throughout the years. One of the most interesting came from my youngest son, Sam, who said at one point that he wanted to be a superhero with chainsaw arms and laser eyes. I said, chainsaw arms, how are you going to feed yourself? He said, you're going to feed me. I said, okay, I don't argue with a man with chainsaw eyes and laser arms. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a good question. My wife asked a good question after I came home from church with ripped pants. How did you miss that? Paul asked a good question in Acts 9.5. Who are you, Lord? But this, this is the ultimate question. This is a question that every human being must and will answer. No question and no answer is more crucial 
in all of life than this one. Who do you say that Jesus is? You and I can spend our lives going through first, first, first few chapters, first few verses of John. We can spend years articulating, pontificating theology. We can study the Bible, articulate all sorts of fine ideas about Jesus. We can examine and consider and ponder the historical reality of Jesus Christ, and we should. We should do all of those things. But in the end, in the end, uh, each one of us must answer for ourselves that one singularly central question that Jesus asks of each of us. Who do you say that I am? Now, the book gives us the answer. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And there in Matthew 16, it was Peter's personal confession of this truth and his subsequent proclamation of Jesus as son of God that became the founding testimony of the church, the bride of Christ, the gathered body of believers purposed to know him and to make him known. And that's why we've spent these past six weeks or so looking at portraits of Christ, knowing him. And now as we move into the fall and you've heard about the engagement project with the past couple of weeks, we're going to go out and we're going to make him known and continue that beautiful biblical rhythm of confession and proclamation. We have the joy this morning of ending our time together by taking communion. Uh, and so if you've got your, your cups and you want to start peeling off those little tabs, uh, may it not be lost on us this morning that communion is a proclamation of that which we confess to be true. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim, right? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're with us this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you would not say that he is the Son of God. You've not put your faith in him. We are so grateful that you're with us this morning. But just out of respect for what we believe this signifies, would you uh, pass on taking communion with us and instead spend these next few moments pondering that question? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I would plead with you to call upon him today, to trust him in faith that he is who he says he is. Our salvation from sin and judgment and brokenness comes only by way of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to know Jesus as the Son of God because unless we believe this truth by faith, we cannot be freed from sin. We'll never be in relationship with the God who created us. Jesus himself says in John 6:40, he says, "For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." That's his promise to you. So who do you say that Jesus is? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And so settle it today. 
so that when you meet him face to face, and you will meet him face to face, your question will not be, how did I miss that? If you do know him, we have the joy of proclaiming him today through communion, of remembering a body that was broken for us, blood that was shed for us, and through remembering that he is truly and eternally the son of the living God. Instead, spend the next 60 seconds or so as we prepare our hearts before him. Perhaps the question you would ponder this morning is, are there ways in my life in which the son of God has become a truth known but unlived? Take some moments. We'll take communion together as a family in just a minute or so. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. With cup in hand this morning, would you stand with me as we make the proclamation? And Paul writes, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are so gracious to us that you would send your son to pay a penalty we could never pay, to die a death we could never die, to live a life we could never live so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, we are awed, Lord, the fact that you have done this, that your son, Jesus, done this on our behalf. And so, Father, we give you thanks this morning. Father, we rejoice that we don't worship a man. We don't worship a prophet. We don't worship anything less than the very Son of God. And so, Father, as we confess that, as we believe that, as that is worked out in our hearts and our minds and our emotions, Father, may we go out and proclaim it boldly, clearly. 
Father, we are grateful this morning for all that you've done. We give you thanks for your word, for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.